raise children to the glory of God. We want to fill the earth with godly children. But at the center of how we do that, I believe, is if we use the word respect and mutual respect. Children should respect their parents, but parents, I think it's essential that we remember that God's called us to respect our children, to respect who they are, what they are, made in the image of God, gifts that are given to us. We are to handle that precious gift that God's given with care, with deep respect, and we're not to crush them, we're not to, uh, not to simply overpower them and, and push and force, but we are to lead. We are to do so with respect for their frame and the fact that they're children, the fact that they're fragile, the fact that obviously God gave them parents to oversee them, to shepherd them, to lead them, to be examples to them. All of those things are what we're called to in the context of mutual respect in the family. It's uh, because we're selfish, all of us, both parents and children, much of our conflict in the family has to do with somebody or several somebodies wanting to guard their own turf or issues of pride. Uh, It's mine. I want it. You're bothering me. It's all about me and what you're doing to me. If you leave me alone, if you leave my stuff alone, if you let me do what I want to do, then you can go do what you want to do. But the minute you cross the line, then we begin to have a conflict and we lose sight of the fact that we're called to raise our children and and to do it with love, which means sacrifice, which means it's not about us. It's about the glory of God. It's about what's good for our children and ultimately what's good for our neighbors. We should be raising our children to be good neighbors, to love their neighbors, to show respect for others. And we do that by example, we do that by teaching, uh, and we do that with our discipline. So it's doctrine and discipline. It's what we teach, it's what we enforce, it's what we insist upon, and it's what we show forth. So to take up where we left off last time and to wrap up this section on how we pick up pieces when we have pieces to pick up, uh, I want to talk about sins of presumption. Presumptuous sins are frequently the cause of household failures. In fact, almost all sin begins here. We presume that the rules don't apply to us the way they apply to everyone else. As unbelievers, some parents certainly have never thought that the Word of God applied to them at all. Uh, But many Christian parents falsely presume that because they're Christians, God will bail them out regardless of their conduct. Uh, After all, he has promised to forgive us, and so we unfortunately operate on the edge, near near the precipice. And then sometimes we find that we, oftentimes we find that we fall over. Now God is merciful, and God will forgive us, but the consequences of that kind of presumption still live on. And there are results, or consequences that come as a result of us being presumptuous about God. Having been presumptuous, then, of course, we eventually fall. Be sure your sins will find you out. Do not be deceived. Boy, when the Bible says that, why does it say that? Because we are prone 
to be deceived. Do not be deceived. You will reap what you sow. And so such falls are at best painful and humiliating. And if you have children, get ready. You will have some pain and you will have some humiliation. We must distinguish, however, between biblical presumption, which is called faith, which rightly believes what God has promised and warned of. And so we're distinguishing between that kind of presumption, we presume upon the promises and warnings of God, versus the sins that are presumptuous, which wrongly assumes God's blessings are automatic. The former, taking God at his word, employs the means that God has ordained for raising godly children, because this is faith working through love. Do what God sa- believe what God says, do what God says to do, and then you should expect the results that God has promised. And so it, this kind of faith takes seriously the duty to train up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and to diligently teach them the Scriptures. So let me just pause and ask that rhetorical question of all the parents here. Are you training up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Is that part of your daily routine, part of your conversation? Do your children have a God consciousness, an awareness of His presence in their lives on a regular basis? Not just for the big things, but for the routine things, the daily things. That's why we pray over our meals. That's why we have family worship. That's why we have... In our conversation, we bring God into that on a regular basis. We pray with them and for them. But also to teach them diligently, diligently, the Scriptures. Is that what you're doing? If you're not, then don't expect the results and the blessings of the promises that God has given. Now, it's not that we are earning those blessings. That's all a gift, too. It's all gracious Uh, gifts from God when he blesses us and our family. We don't deserve it, but it is a condition in order to receive the blessing. And so, you know, if you put a plate of food before someone, it's a blessing, but it really doesn't become a full blessing until someone, you say, well, you got to pick up your fork and put that food in your mouth in order to appropriate that blessing. So there's a condition attached to the blessing. It's not a meritorious cause of the blessing, You're not earning the food by putting it in your mouth, but it is necessary to put it in your mouth in order to receive the blessing. It is necessary to teach the Bible to your children, the Word of God, in the context of love and prayer and discipline and all those things in order for them to appropriate the nutrition, the spiritual nutrition. Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures from the time you were a nursing baby which are able to make you wise unto salvation. What if he hadn't known the Scriptures? From the t- How did he know the Scriptures from the time he was a nursing baby? From his mother and his grandmother teaching him the Scriptures from the time he was a nursing baby. That's how. So you have to actually do it in order to appropriate the blessings. And so, um, it... So the latter ignores God's ordained means. That is this idea of presuming upon what God's promised. Oh, well, it's automatic. So that ignores God's ordained means and expects the benefits anyway. 
The rules may apply to everyone else, but they don't apply to me. And so we tend to expect covenant blessings while being covenant breakers. These are presumptuous sins. Now the flip side of this is seen in overzealous parenting. Parents who are determined to raise perfect children. Of course they would say, no, 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 our children are not perfect. No, we're not. But the reality is there's this becomes this kind of meritorious based, we're going to do it all right, we have all the checklists, we've read all the books, we have a plan, and now we're going to set out to execute this in some kind of uh, a, a way in which we go down the checklist, and if we do all these things, uh, then we will get this result. And so parental pride at this point can crush the spirit of a child. Some parents allow their lambs to wander from the fold. Others drive them away. Sin is doing less than what God commands, and it is also doing more than he commands. And so a man can fall off a horse on the left or the right. Joshua 23.6, Therefore be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. So there's more than one way we can deviate from God's Word. Both licentious parenting and legalistic parenting can and often does produce rebellious children. Even parents who have placed their children in Christian schools, and yes, even homeschool children can be the products of such presumptuous parenting. Anytime we assume that something can take the place of diligent, loving, godly, disciplined parenting, we run the risk of a bad outcome. God's covenant blessings, again, have con- are conditional promises. And so the Bible offers many or a number of examples of sinful parenting, parental presumption. The corrupt sons of Eli... Hophni and Phinehas, Abraham with Ishmael, Isaac with Jacob and Esau, as well as the house of David. Likewise, many Christian parents have raised children who've grown up to deny the faith. Why is this the case? Is God not keeping his promises? But we have to remember that he promises both blessings, that is happiness, and curses or misery. Now, is that God promised misery because he doesn't love us? No, that's, that's the pain. That's, it's like every other kind of pain. It's to stop us from doing whatever it is we're doing that's causing that pain. If there was no pain, if there were no consequences, then we just keep right on doing the thing that's going to kill us and kill our children and kill the future, kill the society. So God brings judgment. He brings pain. He brings correction. He brings... Um, Uh, chastisement in our lives in order to teach us to stop doing the things that hurt us and hurt our children and to lead us to embrace the things that are good for us and good for our children. And so, like the Pharisees, we often offer up the excuse that we were busy with many godly pursuits, our jobs, our ministries, uh, church work, all kinds of things that we might be busy with. But Jesus reminded the Pharisees, 
And uh, he reminded them and us, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So, you know, if we get it 60% right, that's not enough. Uh, God's called, that's why we see these words, uh, things like diligence on the one hand and don't be deceived on the other. Uh, We can, again, have problems in both directions. And so there are consequences to persistent disobedience in regard to our children, intended or otherwise. So you can say, sometimes I know I'm being rebellious and I just don't want to do what God says, but most of the time I think it's just neglect. It's laziness, it's a lack of diligence, it's a whatever. You know, we're better than a lot of people, so that's good enough. But that's how we live, a lot of us live our Christian lives. Uh, So let's talk about sins of abdication. Having committed sins of presumption, Christian parents often wind up in the ditch or the canyon of failure. We're then tempted to another kind of failure, abdicating our responsibilities, shifting the blame, or just giving up, throwing our hands up. Perhaps the children are out of control and it seems too late or too hard to rein them in. Or perhaps they're grown and it seems that all is lost. Sins of abdication are manifest in, to use the old word, fainting. Just, again, getting worn out. I'm tired of this. Anybody think raising kids is hard work? It's like the hardest work in the world, isn't it? Okay? Quitting, giving up, crawling into a hole, failing even in our failures. That's bad, right? I failed and now I'm going to fail in my failure by not repenting and not doing getting up and doing the next right thing, I'm just going to keep doing it. And so this abdication of our responsibilities denies the power of God to strengthen and change lives and to repair the ruins. That's what the gospel does, is it resurrects. It takes that which is lost and finds it, that which was dead and makes it alive. It takes the hopeless and gives them hope. That is the gospel when we believe it and act on it. The problem is we often don't believe it and we don't act on it. What's the use? It's too late. The damage has been done. We can't make up for our past sins. And so abdication says that failure is all there is and there remains no hope for future success. But what about what the Bible says about repentance and confession? You see, that... that, attitude I just mentioned, what's the use? Uh, The problem is it isn't true that it's hopeless. Because with God, all things are possible to those that believe. Mark 9, 23. The solution to any failure begins by turning away from the things that caused the failure. Household sins are often more complex than individual sins because they usually involve more than one sinner. And we, as we honestly evaluate our own sins and failures, care should be given not to assume all the guilt if it doesn't belong there. Oh, well, it's all my fault. That can become an excuse too. Maybe it's not all your fault. 
Maybe it's 60% your fault. Okay? So own whatever is yours. Have an honest assessment about the problem. And so um, we, we should, however, then assume all the parental responsibility. I am the parent. Yes, his friend, who I had no idea was leading him down that path, because they were lying to me and, I, and deceiving me about what they were up to, uh, that wasn't my fault. That was my son's fault or my daughter's fault for following that after having been taught not to have friends like that, not to go that direction. So it's not my fault. That's their sin, but I'm still responsible. I'm still the parent, that's still my child, and I now need to do the next right thing in regard to this problem. And so my sins, excuse me, there, uh, there's a time and a place for dealing with the real sins of others, including the sins of our children, but only after we've removed the beam from our own eye. My sins don't excuse the sins of my children, and my children's sins don't excuse my sins. Men are especially given the responsibility for the family as covenant heads. Godly men eagerly, godly men eagerly own, own up to their own sins. They humble themselves before God and before men, including their families. They set the example by accepting responsibility for their household, including its failures. And by true repentance, graciously seeking reconciliation, and repairing relationships. If you want to see everybody else doing the right thing, you, know, you need to model that for them. Are there people in your family, men, your wife, your children, who need to repent of something? Have they seen you repent of something? Have you modeled that humility for them that you want to see in them? That's the way to go. Sorrow and regret are not, are not the same thing as repentance. We may feel sorrow and regret for many things and still fall short of repentance. Sorrow and regret might lead to repentance, but it's possible to have the former and still fall short of the latter. True repentance does begin with an honest acknowledgement of our sins. And if you look back and you say, I didn't... You know, I, I, didn't, I think I did a pretty good job raising my kids, and, and it's really not my fault. If that, or if it's the other, oh, it's all my fault. Okay, the truth's somewhere between those. Here's how you know. When you can put your finger on what your faults were and then name them. Here's what I did wrong. And sometimes that's not immediate. Sometimes you've got a problem in your house with one of your children, and you don't know what you did wrong. You can't see. You're too close, sir. You need some perspective or you need some outside input or maybe friends who will help you think through that. What could I have done better? But sometimes our, our sense of guilt and fear is I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to, I want to feel bad about it. I want to feel sorry and I'll even say, yeah, I, you know, I dropped the ball, but I don't want to get down to the particulars. Uh, but what's essential is that we learn, remember God's teaching us too, so that we can grow, so that we can be right with God, so that perhaps we need to go back to our children, who may, again, they, their sins are one thing, 
But if I've committed sins against them by not doing what God said to do so that they didn't get in that mess, I might need to start by going to them and saying, you know, I need to tell you what I think I did wrong. Again, you're modeling for them what you want them to do. To repent uh, or to turn from our sins is to change the way we think about and the, the way we think and the way we live. The Bible teaches us that God's mercy awaits those who repent of their sins. I can't repent of your sins. I can't repent of my children's sins. But I can repent of my sins. Isaiah 55, 7-8, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Repentance gives us a new perspective that enables us to look away from ourselves and to look to Christ. And in Christ, there is always hope. Always hope. It enables us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Making excuses, rationalizing, blaming others is the opposite of repentance. We need the grace of repentance to enable us to have an unqualified turning away from our sins. No ifs, ands, or buts. Confession is simply agreeing with God that He has been faithful and true and that what He says about our situation is true of us. Confession flows from repentance to an outward expression of of our sins, with our words, we humbly admit, not just to God, but to the offended parties, that we were wrong. That's, you know, it's not just enough to say to God, Lord, I, I repent, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? But if my sins have impacted someone else, my children, my spouse, the church, others, then articulate that. Say, I want to own that. I kind of, some of you heard me do this if I'm dealing with you in a family situation or some kind of relationship where sin has gotten in the way. Look at it. Own all you can plus 10%. Now that's kind of just a, a metaphor there. I mean, it's not literal there because it's hard to know those percentages. But what I'm saying is, own, honestly own everything you can and then realize maybe I'm missing something. That's the attitude. Is I'm not trying to get by by the bare minimum of, okay, I'll admit that I did this, but how about, you know what, I did do that, and I probably did more than that. You want to tell me, maybe I'm missing something. What else did I do that contributed to this problem? Anybody find that attractive? If someone approached you that way, would you find that winsome and attractive or repulsive? Or do you find defensiveness and excuse-making repulsive and like, yeah, they're not repentant. I did it, but. Just leave the but off. You either did it or you didn't. Or you didn't do it. Just leave the ifs, ands, and buts off. There might be ifs, ands, and buts, but that's something else. That What you're trying to do is cut to the chase to own what belongs to you. That's winsome. 
That's attractive. That's helpful. That advances the cause of being restored. Yeah, but they, yes, okay, they probably need to do some repenting too. Okay, but you can't repent for them. You can only repent for you. And so, with our words, we humbly admit that we're wrong. Having honestly evaluated ourselves in light of God's Word, we now need to bow before Him and say, I was not as diligent and faithful as I should have been in training my children in the ways of the Lord. I did some things well, perhaps, but some other areas I dropped the ball. On our knees before God is the place where the remedy begins. It's here that we ask the Holy Spirit to deal with us and to comfort and help us. We're wounded. We're hurting. Go to your Heavenly Father and say, Lord, I need some help. I'm weak. In addition, confession to our children, spouses, and other offended parties may be necessary. Again, our confession needs to be as broad as our sin. The necessary groundwork has now been laid for forgiveness, a cancellation of the debt. Remember, all sin is a form of theft. We took something that didn't belong to us. Our God gave us a job to do, and we didn't do it. We stole from Him. He said, here, here are these children. Here's what I want you to do with them. And then if we don't do it, then we are taking from God what isn't ours to take. Time, money, uh, attention, Why? The chief end of man? To glorify God with our children. And so now we want to ask him to do what? Lord, I stole from you. Would you pay for it? He said he would. Just ask. Confess your sins and I'll forgive your sins. Admit that you stole from me and I'll pay for it. I'll cancel the debt, the guilt taken away. And so, having listened to God's word and responded by going to him in repentance and confession of our own sins, we now face some remaining obstacles. Wisdom is necessary as we move to repair damaged covenantal relationships. Repentance toward our children often requires much humility, especially when our children might have been horribly offensive and sinful towards others and toward us. Admitting our own failures is not an approval of their sins. Moreover, we can love our wayward child without approving of their sinful behavior. Those are not the same thing. To love someone doesn't mean we approve. Now, see, that's what the world does. The world wants to confuse these things and say, well, if you love me, you're going to approve of what I'm doing. You won't oppose me. You won't disagree with me. And that world is full of that right now. I think it's always been full of that, but we see it everywhere. Well, if you don't approve of what I'm doing, you must hate me, right? That's not true at all. Approval and love are not the same thing. In fact, if someone's sinning, it would be hateful to approve of that sin. That would be the opposite of love. And so... Admitting our own failures, again, is not an approval of theirs, more, of their sin. Moreover, we can love our wayward child, again, without approving of their behavior. 
Pastoral counsel is recommended before initiating some of these confrontations. And by confrontation, I don't mean hostile confrontation. I just mean confronting an issue, having a conversation, writing a letter, making a phone call, paying a visit. Again, depending on the age of our children. This, by the way, can happen with very young children while they're still in your home. So it happens at any point along the way, some big, some little. Guidance in what should be said and done is often needful because someone else who's not as immediately involved might have some wisdom to offer of how to approach something and how to talk to someone, how to to set the table for the best possible results. A face-to-face conversation or well-thought-out letter might be a good place to start. Some situations may seem hopeless, but we should remember the words of our Lord. Matthew 19:26 But Jesus looked at them and said to them with men this is impossible but with God all things are possible. Again Jesus said to him if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. Not all relationships will be repaired but all can probably be improved and some dramatically so. You say, sometimes we think, if I can't have it all, if we can't go back to 100%, I'm not going to do anything. Well, how about 10%? Would that be an improvement? How about a step in the right direction? How about one more? How about next year, two more? I don't know how long God's going to work, and I don't know how dramatically He's going to work, but I do know He's going to work. He hears our prayers. He blesses our faithfulness. Surprisingly, have you ever been surprised by God? Yes. Godly confrontation, again, need not be hostile. Our approach should be gentle in manner while remaining resolute in purpose. Paul admonishes us in Ephesians 4, 29-32, Let no corrupt or unclean word proceed out of your mouth. How many? Zero. But only what is good for necessary edification or building up Why? That it may impart grace to the hearers. There's an assumption there. If they're needing grace, which is ill-deserved favor, you want to impart that to the person who doesn't deserve that. That's what we're called to do. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were asked a seal for the day of redemption. Let all... Now this is our instruction to us. So somebody's offended me... Somebody sinned against me. Now, what are my instructions? No corrupt words. Only words that build up, that help the situation. Only grace extended to the hearer. Why? Let all bitterness, that's my sin. Wrath, yeah, I'm really angry. I'm really ticked off. Anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you. All of it. Every last drop. With all malice. That means the heart. And then what? And be kind to one another. Yeah, but they, yeah, I know, they did. But just think of what you did to the Lord. Okay? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, how? Just as God in Christ forgave you. There's the standard. So just ask that question. How did, how did God in Christ forgive me? What was his attitude? 
Yeah, okay, I'll forgive you, but I don't want to see you anymore. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You really annoy me. Okay. No. I'll just cancel the debt. Here, let me write the check. Paid. Come here. Let's sit down and have a meal together. Yeah, but that's too simple. Shouldn't, that, shouldn't you have to grovel and maybe crawl on broken glass for a while or something to pay for your sins? No, you can't do that. You can't pay for your sins. You mean I'm supposed to do that for other people who sinned against me? Just like that? That's simple? In five minutes and five seconds? Yes. Sometimes I've seen situations that have gone on for years, and in one five-minute, ten-minute meeting, there was a complete reversal. Now, that doesn't mean everything went back to the way it was. We've got damage. We've got things to make up for. We've got to rebuild. That's not the point. But, but if there's real for repentance and forgiveness, you say, well, what if the other person won't repent? Well, you still don't get to be bitter and angry and have clamor. You have to do what God's called you to do. God's Word remains the standard for godly relationships, and our desire to remove the tension that might exist, must not be allowed to reduce the standard. Nevertheless, the goal is to make true repentance and reconciliation as easy as possible. Now, I'm not going to take the time to parse that statement out. Let me just say, I want to make it easy as possible, and God's Word defines what's possible. I don't get to ignore sin. Though love covers a multitude of sins. I don't redefine sin. I don't get to lower the standard of God's Word. So, but I want to make repentance as easy as possible. And you say, well, I think they ought to admit to this, 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 and this, and they ought to do it with this tone of voice and with this look in their eye. And let's assume you're right about all of that. Would you accept 80% of that? How about 50%? Uh, I think they ought, yeah, they probably ought to. Maybe they're not mature enough. Maybe they're afraid. Maybe their faith is really small. Maybe they're immature. Maybe they are not there yet. Did God demand perfection of you before he accepted you? Because that's the standard. Truthful, clear, calm, humble communication that lays out biblical expectations for all the parties involved provides the only solid foundation for full restoration. Establishing new trust will likely be a slow process. We probably can't deal with every issue at once. Sometimes things are in the past. Sometimes we don't remember everything that was said. Sometimes we have to deal with one or two or three big things, and just say, you know what, we're not going to go back and relitigate what happened on June the 17th, 1973. We can't. How about we look each other in the eye and say, I love you. Can we start fresh? Sin always inflicts damage to ourselves and others. It hurts. Biblical love provides the only environment for dealing with the damage. It doesn't ignore the sinner or his sin. 
But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to clean up first. It was while we were sinners that He died for us. And so sin, uh, 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 excuse me, God's love for us, God loves us even though He is the offended party. Nevertheless, He provides the way of reconciliation. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words, works, yet now he has reconciled us to the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He did it all. The Bible lays out the way telling us if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God might not take away all the consequences of our sins, but he will take away the guilt of all our sins, along with the shame. Forgiveness clears the ground of past offenses so that a new relationship can be built in its place. Reconciliation is the goal. Communion of love. Now, mending will not begin with nurtured animosity, but rather by creating an atmosphere of redemption. The Apostle Paul admonishes the church regarding a repentant sinner, 2 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. On the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. There must be hope. Most of us are guilty of plenty of sinful and stupid things in our past, and we owe a debt of love and gratitude to those who have not perpetually held them against us, but rather helped us to stand again. And as we move out to accomplish reconciliation and redemption, we must not leave behind bitterness in ourselves, uh, any remaining bitterness in ourselves, and we must seek the good of our children. There is always hope in Christ. And since salvation and sanctification are gracious or undeserved works of God, healing and hope can come to any situation. Sinners get converted. Husbands and wives can, by the power of of the Holy Spirit, change. Broken lives can be put back together. And lost children, by the grace of God, sometimes come to their senses and embrace the faith of their parents. And like our Savior, we earnestly seek lost sheep. The Proverbs teach us in Proverbs 13:15 that the way of the transgressor is hard. The consequences of sin often bring enough pain that a sinner is humbled, and then a return is possible. Without compromising God's standards, we must facilitate the possibility, this possibility by providing an environment where a return is safe. They shouldn't fear a return. The father and the prodigal son, somehow that son knew, if I go back, something good's going to happen. We long for humble repentance on the part of the sinner, but this is not accomplished by an attempt to humiliate. We don't want repentance to be any more difficult than necessary, and so a few steps in the right direction 
and restoration might come little by little. Again, the parable of the prodigal son provides the model. He was a foolish son. But there are few pictures more profoundly painted than this verse, and we have it hanging up in our foyer with Rembrandt's uh, rendition of that. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lovely, glorious picture of the gospel. Salvation is by grace. We're saved in spite of who and what we are. Lord, help us to remember that success in child-rearing is therefore not a cause for pride, but rather humility. We can't save ourselves by our works, and neither can we save our children by our works. As long as there is breath, it's never too late for grace to conquer, even in the worst of situations. As long as there's life, it's never too late for the prodigal to come home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.